DW, World in Progress. With Anchor Rasper. On this week's show, we take a deep dive into family affairs. In Argentina, children and grandchildren are trying to hold their relatives accountable for crimes they committed during the country's military dictatorship. It was a journey full of uncertainty and pain, and a very lonely one too. It was about my identity and loyalty. You don't normally go against your own family. But my father was a murderer, and my family had kept silent about horrible crimes. We meet a dedicated foster parent in Germany who's opened her home to children in need. One wish I have is to take care of my hundredth baby, to have achieved that before I retire in seven years. And since I've already had 84, that's only 16 more. Of course, every child that doesn't have to leave the parental home is a success story. But we know life isn't always like that, and there will always be cases. So my hope is that I can stay healthy long enough for this wish to come true. And find out how a cafe in Vienna is bringing together generations. We are sort of a public living room where the generations come together. We are an intergenerational coffee house, and the idea is to uh, create jobs for elderly people so they can earn some money through their pension. We have grandmas and grandpas here who bake cakes in an open kitchen. So you can go there, you can watch, you can chat with them. All that and more coming up now on World in Progress. Welcome to the show in Bonn, Germany. I'm Anke Rasper. The military dictatorship that ruled Argentina from 1976 to 1983 left deep scars. Even 40 years on, the country is still working through the trauma. For some families, that means questioning the roles their own relatives played in serious human rights crimes. Many children and grandchildren of the military and police officers who carried out atrocities grew up believing there was no dictatorship, only a war against subversion that had to be won for God, family, fatherland. But now people of the younger generation have banded together to shed light on the past. They founded the collective Historias Desobedientes, Stories of Disobedience. It's an attempt to break the silence that still prevails today in many families of the dictatorship criminals. Anne Herberg went to find out more and Ben Restle presents her report. We are the daughters, sons, granddaughters, grandsons and relatives of those who committed genocide and played the leading role in Argentina's cruel dictatorship. We were born into these families. They told us what to think about the world and we believed it until we couldn't take it anymore and the truth blew up in our faces. This is how the Historias Desobedientes, or Stories of Disobedience, collective manifesto begins. It wants to break the silence that still prevails in many families of those who had a say in Argentina's military dictatorship. I was born in 1979 during the dictatorship, but I grew up without knowing this dictatorship had existed in Argentina. We were a normal family, I lived in a total bubble. That was until 2005, when the amnesty laws were lifted and my father was suddenly arrested. I didn't understand anything at all. The meaning of this will become clear, he told me, calling his arrest a political operation against him. That's when I first learned about the military coup. 
Analia Kalinek is the daughter of Eduardo Kalinek, who served as police commissioner under Argentina's military dictatorship, which ruled from 1976 to 1983. On the weekends, he was a regular family man, hosting barbecue parties. But during the week, Dr. K, as he was known, was a brutal torturer, having people kidnapped and disappeared. In 2010, Eduardo Kalinek was sentenced to life imprisonment. Reading victims' testimonies was a turning point for Analia Kalinek, she says. It was a journey full of uncertainty and pain, and a very lonely one, too. It was about my identity and loyalty. You don't normally go against your own family. But my father was a murderer, and my family had kept silent about horrible crimes. I wrote him letters and got no reply. I wanted to change my surname, but that didn't feel right. Then I came across a book by the children of Nazi criminals. Their story set something in motion. I realized I wanted to know more about our past, that I wanted to do something. In May 2017, human rights organizations and hundreds of thousands of citizens met at Plaza de Mayo in Buenos Aires to protest against the proposed law that would grant pardons to those who committed crimes during the dictatorship, including Analia's father. Analia was there too. It was on this day that the Stories of Disobedience Collective was born, which today has more than 100 members. Together, they published their first book on March 24, the Day of Remembrance for Truth and Justice, commemorating the 1976 coup d'etat and the victims of Argentina's military dictatorship. The book was presented at the former ESMA building, a dictatorship-era torture facility, which is now a place of remembrance. Once someone said to us, we were waiting for you to raise your voice, even if you didn't know it. The collective was something unexpected and positive. It could only emerge thanks to the continuous struggle of human rights groups seeking truth and justice. Argentina is a global role model in the world in terms of taking dictatorship-era criminals to court. We, the children of these criminals, now play an important role in this social context. While we can't choose our parents, we can decide how to feel about them. Analia's father is now seeking a lawsuit against his very own daughter, attempting to prove she is unworthy of the family and therefore undeserving of an inheritance. He is supported by Analia's own two younger sisters, both of whom are officers in Argentina's federal police. To this day, Analia's father has shown no remorse. For Analia Kalinek, this is all the more reason to push for justice and accountability. Ben Restle with a report by Anne Herberg from Argentina. Families can take many different shapes. They can be big or small, harbor secrets and trauma, or they can be close-knit and loving. And they don't necessarily have to be made up of people related to you by blood. Elke Baumann is a foster mother here in Germany who takes care of children in need. She has more than 30 years of experience. And she steps in when mothers can't take care of their own children. Often these birth mothers are minors who find themselves struggling. Or they suffer from drug addiction. Or they are women in prison. 
Their children find love and security with Baumann until permanent foster parents can be found. We accompanied her for several months as she cared for other people's babies in their time of need. Evelyn McClafferty presents this story by Aunt Breitfeld. Elke Baumann changes a baby's diaper at her home in Germany. At only a few weeks old, Elke cares for the baby tenderly. Elke has a short blonde bob, she wears glasses, and today she's got a black and white check shirt on and a light denim pair of jeans. She walks around her apartment, which is full of photographs on the walls, montages of babies she's cared for over the last 30 years. Elke looks after babies who've been taken into care by the youth welfare office because the birth parents couldn't cope or even abuse them. She provides them with a temporary home until foster parents are found. One wish I have is to take care of my hundredth baby, to have achieved that before I retire in seven years. And since I've already had 84, that's only 16 more. Of course, every child that doesn't have to leave the parental home is a success story. But we know life isn't always like that, and there will always be cases. So my hope is that I can stay healthy long enough for this wish to come true. Everyone needs a goal. Elka runs some water over a bottle with milk to make sure it's at the perfect temperature for baby Emma, who is now living with her. Elka's dog, Rocky, a fluffy little thing with big ears and dotted in beige and white, looks on. Emma was only eight weeks old when she arrived at Elka's house. She had been given up for permanent care by her birth mother. There was concern that it might be hard to find new parents because Emma's birth mother took drugs during her pregnancy and this impacted Emma's health. Those sounds you can hear when she drinks, that's because she really struggles to breathe while drinking. Elke takes Emma into her arms, turns her on her tummy and holds her up to her shoulder as she wins her after her feed. Questions arise as to whether Emma's long-term health problems might make finding a home for her more difficult. Unlike adopted children, foster children usually remain legally connected to their birth parents. The birth mothers often retain part of the custody rights and can look for contact. Many potential permanent foster parents are put off by this. Elka has kept three of the 84 babies over the years. She stepped in because no one else wanted them. Two of the babies, now adults, are Jennifer and Marcus. We look at photographs of them on the wall. The older one, he's 25 now. He came with a drug problem. And 25 years ago, no one took in children like that. So he stayed. Yvonne is the third baby that Elka kept, now an adult. She has autism and still lives with Elka and her usually short-term foster babies. She's got short, spiky blonde hair and is wearing jeans and a pink T-shirt. We met her in the corridor of Elka's apartment as she comes out of her room. We ask Yvonne what it's like when the babies leave. She says, it's strange. We ask whether it's sad, and she says, yes, sometimes. But then we add, well, another baby soon arrives, right? Yes, she says, and we both acknowledge that this is nice. Two months after we first met Elka, we visit her and Emma again. A second baby has moved in in the meantime, Nora. 
Nora is wearing a white and pink dotted tee and a grey and white dotted type baby dungarees. Elka too is wearing a grey top. She tells us about Nora. I picked her up from a crisis centre. She was found there right after the birth. Her mother left her there. The baby's feet are in casts because she has two club feet. She was born with clubfoot. Baby Emma is in another womb and is just about to be picked up and brought to her new home. The separation is expected to be difficult for Elka. To help her in times like this, Heiko Rosentretter is here at the apartment. He carries Nora as Elka carries Emma and is wearing a blue and navy check shirt, glasses and willingly lends his support. He helps her in her work as a short-term foster mother. It's not a job, it's just love. And Emma leaving now is one of those things. She's found a place in our hearts and so it hurts to let go. Emma's new foster mother has arrived. Sarah Munter and her son Noah met Emma six weeks ago. They bonded with the baby straight away and have visited Emma almost every day since, giving her a chance to get used to them. Now Emma is about to move into her new home. We asked Sarah how she's feeling. It's really exciting. I have lots of different feelings. I'm happy, looking forward and curious about the future. We also ask her why she's doing this. Well, on the one hand, I'm doing it as a job. I'm shifting careers. I work in childcare also with special needs kids. So it's another system different to foster families in that I get a salary for doing it. A big advantage for me as a single parent and for my son is that I can work at home and fulfill my dream of having a second child and hopefully offer her a good future. After four months with Elka and a 15-minute handover, Emma leaves with her new family. Elka is visibly upset. Okay, time for a deep breath. Four weeks after Emma's departure, we're back at Elka's home. A big red car that could hold a small family pulls up outside. Today, it's Nora's day to move out. A couple from Bavaria in the south of Germany, who already have three foster children with disabilities, have come to Berlin. Anna Catherine Canor and her wife Manuela want to take in little Nora as their fourth child. Anna Catherine says there was no doubt in their minds about taking Nora in their care. We've already seen lots of cute pictures and heard lots about Nora, so it's really not a question at all. Elke is already waiting for Nora's new foster mothers, but she does so holding another baby in her arms. Leo has been here for 14 days now. He was born in hospital. The mum had herself voluntarily discharged a day later and left him there. But it was already clear in advance that the child would be taken into care. It's the mother's fourth child. None of them live with her. But he didn't need immediate withdrawal therapy. I think it's because the mother was in custody and didn't have access to so many drugs, so maybe that was lucky for him. While Leo just recently arrived, Nora is about to leave. 
Elka sits in her home during the official handover for Nora and gives documentation to her new carers. After two months, Nora is saying goodbye to her temporary foster mom. Again, the handover only takes about 15 minutes. That's how it is. One comes, the other goes. A little over two months later, it's summer, and we're visiting Elke again. We sit in her green garden, which has a swing and playpen. Her other three adult foster children are about to drop by. She took in another baby, five-week-old Eula, a while ago. Leo, the little boy affected by his mother's drugs, is also still with her. We can't find anyone. We've been looking for eight weeks now in Berlin, Brandenburg. No one wants him. Actually, the next step now would be a place in a residential group. Markus and Jennifer arrive at Elke's garden. Elke greets them happily. More than 20 years ago, they were foster babies living with Elke. They ended up staying. Markus now works as an IT expert, Jennifer as an assistant chef. Neither of them have any contact with their biological parents. As we sit around a dining table, Marcus tells us that he has never looked for his mother and Jennifer says she does not want to meet hers. For me, there is only my mother. I mean, not my biological mother, but Elke. For me, she is my mother. We know that we had a great privilege and we were also raised to always appreciate what you have. As Yvonne also joins the group in the garden, Elke greets her. Heiko Rosentretter, who we heard from earlier, picked up Yvonne from an organisation that only employs people with disabilities. She is 21 years old now and still lives at home with her foster mom. Jennifer is now a mother herself. Marcus isn't a father yet, but would like to be in the future. I definitely want to have children. At best, I'll find a woman who is just as strong and we could care for two or three foster children. That would be wonderful. But for me, the time just hasn't come yet. <laughs> it's a happy family reunion around the table. They reminisce, chat and lovingly support each other. Heiko reiterates his support for all children. I always say no child should be seen as a foster child. These are kids and they need our help and support. As Elke watches Yvonne take to the swing and knowing that her care for babies will continue, she says there are two things she wishes for. Yes, of course. My big goal would be to care for the hundredth by the time I retire, maybe even to do it a year longer depending on my health, and to find them the best possible homes. And of course, what's still very close to my heart is Yvonne. I'm very worried about that. It's not so easy with her. I don't want to have to send her to some home. I want to find a good setup where someday I can close my eyes and say, she's in good hands. Elko also hopes that Eula and Leo will find new parents. We say that things have turned out well with all of the children we have met so far and ask whether that gives Elka confidence. 
and she says she has hope for every baby that's with her. Yeah. Yes. I always say he can stay a while longer. He still needs some pampering. Maybe we'll find someone after all. That report by Anne Breitfeld was presented by Evelyn McClafferty. Some families just don't work out. Usually, that leads to divorce. However, that's virtually impossible in the Philippines, the only country in the world, besides the Vatican, where divorce is not allowed. A new bill aims to change that, but whether it will pass remains unclear. Anne-Sophie Brentlin has more in this report by Ulrich Mentgen. 41-year-old April Tadios from Manila wants nothing more than to finally get divorced. But that's not legally possible in the Philippines. Her husband ran off years ago. Now she's got to take care of her 15-year-old daughter all by herself. They live in poverty with just about 12 square meters of living space for both of them. And without a divorce, Tadios can't receive child support. I'm afraid that I won't be able to give my daughter everything she needs. When she asks me for something, I say, be patient, we can't afford it right now. We don't have any money right now. What God has joined together, let men not separate. That's what's written in the New Testament. In two countries, this dictum is enshrined in law the Vatican, and the Philippines. Father Jeremy Ceciliano of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of the Philippines thinks divorce certainly isn't appropriate for solving relationship problems. The circumstances are different from these countries compared to ours, so we don't need to be like them. So I guess we should even be proud that here we are sticking to it, now that, that, that we are protecting marriage as an institution, so not the divorce. The church and the state do, however, accept annulments, which means that the marriage never existed on paper. But this is a lengthy process that only the wealthy can afford. Most people in the Philippines are Catholic. It's a conservative country. And so far, attempts to reform its marriage law have failed, which is also due to its complicated political system. Member of Parliament Etzel Lagman has seen Parliament postpone and delay any decision on reforming marriage law, most recently because of the pandemic. He hopes that now both parliamentary chambers and the president will support his new bill. While uh, marriages are supposed to be solemnized in heaven, many uh, plummet into hell because of human frailty. And uh, because of this, many are uh, in infernal uh, uh, agony, more particularly abused women and abandoned women. We will have to give a lifeline to these uh, couples in distress. April Tadios makes ends meet by working several small jobs, for example as a babysitter. For eight years, she has been separated from the man to whom she is still technically married and who doesn't support her. Her relatives help support her because the law has failed her. For April Tadios, the happiest day of her life would be when she finally gets to get divorced. And for our last story, we visit a cafe in Vienna that wants to bring generations together. The unique project aims to fight poverty by giving the elderly a chance to earn some extra money after they retire. At the same time, these working grannies and grandpas teach younger folks at the cafe how to prepare delicious cakes. The cafe's name? Vollpension which translates to full board. 
Heidi Fuller Love went out exploring and tasting. Just one of a long line of bars and cafes in Vienna's fourth district. From the outside, there's little to distinguish Faux Pension from the others. Descend a few steps and open the door to the cafe, however, and it's like entering another world where cheery orpars or grandads and charming omars or grandmas chat with young students and families perched on cushioned seats surrounded by old gramophones and sepia photos on walls and vintage furnishings. And over it all hangs the comfort odours of coffee and delicious homemade cake, including Vienna's classic sponge cake, I'm here to meet 36-year-old David Haller, one of the co-founders of Full Pension, or Full Pension, a groundbreaking social cafe project in the Austrian capital, where the city's old-age pensioners can top up their pensions by as much as 40%, whilst actively getting involved in society, making new friends, and mingling with young people as they cook meals and give baking lessons. With a lively mix of both young and senior staff, ranging from the ages of 18 to 80 and hailing from all regions of Austria, diversity is definitely the name of the game here. We are sort of a public living room where the generations come together. We are an intergenerational coffee house and the idea is to uh, create jobs for elderly people so they can earn some money uh, through their pension. And uh, the, we have grandmas and grandpas here who bake cakes in an open kitchen. So you can go there, you can watch, you can chat with them. So it's all about bringing the generations together and uh, learning from each other. The idea, which started as a pop-up in 2012, sprang from a very personal place. I, like I always said, I always had a, a really deep connection with my grandmother. She passed away last year at 91. But she also worked here, so that, that made it even more more special for me. Um, we just started it because we said, well, we need a place where the generations come together and where you get good cakes. It, it, it's much more than, than the cake. It's, it's, it's the feeling that comes with it. It's the love with it's made. Soon, however, he realized that Fol Pension was a lot more than just a place to bring generations together. As David explains, it corresponded to a real felt need in society. And then after a while we found out, well, there's a big, big theme behind when it comes to um, isolation, poverty when you're older. So that's, and that's of course something we're, we're emphasizing now. The, the reasons why the people come here and work here are completely, everybody has his own reasons, but most of them come here because they need the money and their pension is so low. We have coffee and cake, yep. it's for time one hour. We have two breakfasts, mm -hmm. one uh, 90 minutes, small breakfast and big breakfast. It's normally with eggs and ham. And, yes, One of the I first grandmas to start yes, working at Vaux-Pension eight and a half uh, years ago, 78-year-old Marianne yes, is one of the regular hosts. Yes, I, I like this place, but I'm alone, I'm a singer. Yeah? And uh, life at now is so expensive, yes, and so therefore I worked here for money. But also I love to speak with the guests and it's my, it's my family. I'm here alone. Yes, and so I have here, I have here my family, but it's good. 
<laughs> I'm also amateur actress. This is here my theatre. And it's not just older people who love folle pension. For homesick travellers and young students who are far from their families, folle pension is a refuge too. As Annette, who's originally from Munich, can testify. Both of my grandmothers died um, in the last six months, which is uh, very sad because we were so close. And for me also, knowing that I could be in contact with uh, that generation again is so important. Well, it's very different opinions and views on the world as well. And um, getting advice from someone who's already lived for, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 years um, is quite special and very different from advice from someone who's my age. Yes, very enriching, yeah. This groundbreaking project might have started here in Vienna, but with increasing interest from around the world, Folle Pension, an innovative scheme to bridge the generation gap whilst helping seniors beat loneliness and live decently, could soon be a global phenomenon. Watch this space. Heidi Fuller Love reporting from Vienna. And that wraps up our show for this week. The studio team were Wiebke Tegmeier and Wiesam Darman. The producer was Sarah Steffen. For more World in Progress episodes, please go check out dw.com slash World in Progress or go to wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anke Rasper saying thanks for listening and take care. Music